Our scripture reading this afternoon is from the book of Acts. We continue in Acts and we read now chapter 17. In Acts chapter 16, um, Paul and his uh, missionary team were in Philippi. And now in chapter 17, they go from Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Let us read then, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 17, hear God's true and eternal word. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews which believed not Moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sorts, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come Hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the others, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timothy abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now while Paul waited for them and at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him and some said, What will this babbler say, others some? He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you, God that made the world. And all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if haply, if indeed, or perhaps, they might feel after Him, and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring." For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again on this matter, of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus far, may God bless congregation. We return our attention to Acts chapter 17, and we, we continue um, with the theme that brought us in this direction in Acts chapter 15 is where Paul had that vision of the man who said, Come over and help us. Come over into Macedonia and help us. And so we, we see that as Paul arrives in Philippi, what, what he is doing is he is being used of God to help the people that God wishes to help. And in Philippi, we saw that Lydia and her household and that damsel who had been demon-possessed and the jailer and his household, they, they were all helped. There, there were many people. Um, we don't know many others, but it's, it's interesting that in Philippi, um, God inspired um, Luke to, to write down 
at least the name of, of one woman and specific encounters. And then um, from Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, from Thessalonica to Berea, then Athens. And what we have in chapter um, 17 is, is kind of this summary. In, in 16, it was three narratives of personal um, conversions and people that were blessed very specifically. In chapter 17, we have three cities with, with many more people, but they're still under that umbrella of people who are being helped, people that God sent Paul and those missionaries in that direction to be helping. And, and they are helping them with the most important message that souls could ever hear. And then put this together. They're, they're not helping them with finances. They're not helping them with clothing or with shelter. They're not helping them with things that, of course, are helps to people who need it. But we need to understand that what they're doing is they're helping where they need it most. They're, they're giving the message that that long-awaited Messiah has come. There are some who are Jews, so they know there's the promise of a coming Messiah, but they haven't heard yet that He's arrived, and that He's even fulfilled His ministry, that that He died, and that He arose, and that He is now um, in heaven interceding for us. There is a Savior. Some of them maybe have, have heard of the Lord Jesus, but they're still of the mind that He was not the Messiah, and Paul is bringing the message that He is. And he's speaking to them about how it is to be believed that that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. And then we we now encounter in this part, in Athens especially, um, people who were were not even close to the religion of the Jews. They're not the fearing, God-fearing Gentiles. They're, They're people who are still worshiping their false gods. And Paul ministers to them and gives them this message. They They are being helped with forgiveness of sins. They're being helped so that their guilty conscience would be relieved. They are being helped with hope of eternal life. They are being helped with the certainty that they will inhabit heaven forever. We're talking about the greatest help any soul could ever Desire. There, there is no entertainment. There is no sport. There is no human philosophy, no hobby, no book, no, no, no movie, no method that can render a better and a more glorious help than this. This is what Paul and his missionary band are doing. And so let us, let us follow as they go from Thessalonica and Berea and Athens. And we will be looking at these three main themes. First, the, the inspired evangelism. So in our first point, we will try to do the whole trail, but mainly focusing upon how, how was Paul preaching? Not, not only the heart of his preaching, but even the, the matter of his preaching. What, what was his message in some of these places? And then we will see, and, and, and I want to emphasize that this is inspired evangelism. We, we live in a conundrum. If, if you've been in the church long enough, you, you know how there, there are debates as to how we should evangelize. There are many books that have been written. Well, the safest place is to go to the Bible and see how God um, inspired Paul to do it. Paul was human, and so, of course, he could have been 
He, he had mistakes. But as we see it being placed in Scripture, what he said and how he was doing it, we, we really do have here a model that is worth to be followed. And so, inspired evangelism. And then secondly, human unbelief. We see this, this pattern that is formed everywhere Paul goes. There are those who believe and those who don't. And as we, as we see all of these different examples, we, we find lessons there. And we can see something about what unbelief is. And then thirdly, the gift of faith. Because the same thing there is a pattern of those who believe and things that they did. And there are not too many details, but we're going to look at the ones that we do find in the text. And we'll, we indeed see that it, it is a gift to have faith. So first of all, inspired evangelism. And we, we start in Thessalonica. Paul is doing, um, even as the text says, he's, he's doing what was his manner to do? Verse 2, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures in the synagogue of the Jews. That's invariably where Paul began everywhere he went. If there was a synagogue, even in Athens, that will have a lot of, of pagan religions, there were Jews, so there were synagogues, and, and he went there. So he's there for three days, and... The words that I want to con- consider here is, is this, that he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. The word reasoned, but then in verse 3 it says, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So the first thing that we notice in, in his method of evangelism is something about the manner he, he reasoned. To reason means to converse. It does, an element, it does have an element of, of, of argue, but it's more in the sense of discussing. So he was reasoning. He was conversing. He was discussing. That's what Paul did in the synagogues. About the suffering of Christ. That was like a key theme. And the suffering, of course, that led to the death and therefore the resurrection. So, in a sense, there's nothing new here. This is what we understand the gospel to be. But what, what is new, and, and what we, we, not so much that it's new, but that we need to appreciate is this. Um, see, the Jewish people knew that that was the one thing they knew from their Old Testament, which was their, their, their current testament, of course, their Bible. They knew there was a promised Messiah. They knew He would be a son of David. They knew He would be a rod of Jesse. There were many, many prophecies that they weren't so understanding that it was regarding the Messiah, and, that, and that's where the problem arose. But they knew there was a Messiah, and they knew they had to wait for Him. They knew He would be a king, that He would be a ruler. But they didn't understand that He had to suffer. In fact, in their theology, this Messiah would just only have positive things about Him, of victory and of glory and of wonder and of majesty. And they thought of him very clearly as a, as a worldly um, person, as a, as a king who would establish a, a powerful kingdom here on earth. 
And, and, and you see, we, we've been going through Isaiah in the mornings, and, and you see the emphasis that God makes to bring clear to the hearts of the people, to do away with any such kind of hope and aspiration. But see, that was their hope and aspiration. They saw the mighty kings all out there, and their hope was that their Messiah would be the mightiest king of all those. And even while... Isaiah was telling the people, stop focusing on the crown. Stop focusing on the glitter of gold. And stop focusing on on the the size of the armies. What was Isaiah presenting? The servant. We, We saw this morning. The servant who is the son of God. And everything about him had an element of glory that was divine, but that would baffle the minds of people because it spoke in humiliating terms. And we saw this morning where where the very servant, when he speaks, he speaks in a sense that there will be a sense of vanity to his ministry. That there isn't much of an effect. But see, that was God teaching his people. You need to understand the Messiah that will come has nothing to do with the glorious kingdoms of, of our nations. He will be a humble man and yet a powerful, the most powerful that's ever come. He will be like a shepherd who takes the little lambs. And he will not break those who are weak and already half broken. And if there are those in society who are like little smoked flax, as we saw this morning, he's not going to put it out. He's going to take care of them. He's going to fan the flames. He will be a gentle ruler. A humble one. He's even going to die. That's Isaiah 53. He's even going to be buried. There's a prophecy that he will make his grave with the rich. But you see, that completely went over the heart of the Israelite. It would be a blessing to meet one by one and see, were there some, were there some Jews of those days who had that understanding? He will indeed suffer. He will indeed even die. Well, that was the duty of Paul. That, see, that was, that was the message Paul had. The Messiah you have heard. The Messiah you know so much about. There's this that you didn't. And, and Paul understood them because that's who he was. That's why he pursued the way and why he persecuted Jesus and the followers of Jesus. Because Paul was convinced that they were all um, deceived. And so Paul thought, that's a false religion. I'm going to kill all of you. And I'm, I'm going to stop all of this until he saw and met Jesus. And, and realized that that resurrected Jesus and who had suffered and, and is now in his glory is the true Messiah. And so now Paul will cross um, lakes and, and seas and, and wildernesses to tell every soul that the Messiah that we're waiting for, he had to suffer. And he had to die. And he had to arise from the grave. And that Jesus of Nazareth qualifies all of those for all of those points. Now, we've been reading this morning, and I want to read just a few portions um, that that would point exactly to this. Just just for us to appreciate that it's not that Scripture was obscure about this. It's just that it, it wasn't in their hearts They just simply didn't perceive it. For us, it's been pointed to many times. The passages I want to read are not unfamiliar to you. 
But, um, and it wasn't unfamiliar to them. The thing is that to you, you've been pointed to them so very often that they are passages about Jesus. But we need to realize this one thing, even, even as Jews that are living today, they still don't think of these passages as being met by the Messiah. But let me just read a few of them. Isaiah 49 that we read this morning, verse 4. Even after the glorious um, declaration that he was called and that he will be the, the Savior, verse 4, the Messiah is speaking and he says, Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. See, there is this tension. You think, well, how can this be the Messiah? He's speaking that his word has no effect. But see, this is, this is to show that's how it would look like. And to the eyes of the people, as they see that man trailing to Calvary, they're going to think that his work is done. Well, that will be the Messiah. That, that's who the Messiah, that has to be something about him. And then, um, verse 7 of 49, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth. Well, that's who Jesus is. Well, they would read this and they would say, No, um, the nation, Israel, Israel can't abhor the Messiah. But that is what was being said. But then an element of glory. To a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and He shall choose thee. You see, there's always this duality of humiliation and exaltation. You find them often in the very same verse. Let me read another passage. This passage would be one of the most clear passages that would speak of the death of the Messiah and also the resurrection in, in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. And I'll be, I'll be reading verses 25 through 27. This is one of the visions that Daniel had that spoke much about the things that would, would happen, including um, the return to, to Israel of God's people. And in Daniel 9, beginning in verse 25, we read, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. So Jerusalem would be restored. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So that is the death of the Messiah. And then verse 27, And he, which would have to be the Messiah, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So this verse 27 is seen as, well, now he has resurrected. And because he died and now arose, 
The temple is no, no longer necessary. We don't need to sacrifice anymore. And the way that God made that clear was by even having the temple destroyed. And then I, I do want to point also to Psalm 22. Um, Psalm 22 and, and, and then Psalm 69. Just a few verses. Psalm 22 beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Can you imagine people looking at Christ on Calvary's cross and seeing that he's reciting this psalm, at least the first stanza, when it was all dark? Every Jew would have known what he's doing. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. See, the Jews would see this and say, No, our Messiah cannot call himself a worm. But this is what God's word is showing, that this is how much he would suffer. He would feel himself so low and not human. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, and for a moment here, and boys and girls, you might go home and think that I read Matthew or that I read Mark, but I'm here in Psalm 22. He trusted on the Lord. He that would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Isn't that what they said when Jesus was on the cross? But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. We saw in Isaiah where Jesus is saying, I was called from the womb. In verse 10, I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And then he starts describing those around him as bulls of Bashan. And then as they are roaring like lions. In verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Some who have studied the the um, physical effects of hanging on a cross under the hot sun say this is precisely what would happen to the body and to the tongue and to the joints. Verse 17, no, 16. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell, I may count all my bones, because none were broken, remember. They look and they stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vestures. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. See, they didn't understand that this was a psalm that pointed to the suffering of the Messiah. And then you, you can read at home Psalm 69. You'll, you'll read similar portions where we're almost feeling like we're in one of the Gospels. So that 
was the inspired evangelism of Paul. He went about everyone where explaining that the Messiah that we already believe in, fellow Jews, we missed this, but he had to suffer. So he must have pointed them to many of these very passages that we're reading. And then he would probably say, we heard a people there. And they saw the parting of the garments. He was pierced on his hands and on his feet. They were mocking. Look at, look at the things they said. And remember this one detail, beloved. Now part of this group is Luke, the author of one of the Gospels, who, who knew so many things and so many details. And he could be there to answer all the questions of these people. Was it really so? Yes, this is what I heard. This is what I saw. Well, that was one of the main things here. And then, then we see in Thessalonica that after, after Paul preached, um, very simple explaining that Jesus was, the, the Messiah was to suffer, and this Jesus I'm presenting you, therefore, is the Christ. It says, Christ says in verse 4, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of, of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. There, there were many God-fearing Gentiles, men and women, look, and of the chief women, not a few. So here's the formula. Among the Gentiles, men and women, many are believing, and some of the Jews are believing as well. But sadly, it's not the whole story in verse 5. But the Jews which believed not. And we will, we will go to this reaction of these Jews in detail soon. But so these Jews who believed not, they were moved with envy. They took counsel with other people to try to raise a tumult. Paul had to be um, taken in security through the night into Berea. As they arrive in Berea, we we don't have many details of, of his preaching other than the fact that they were in the synagogue and they were presenting, of course, probably similar principles that they just did. But we'll go back to Berea when we look at the, the unbelief and the belief. But then from Berea, they go to Athens. And I, I want to go straight to Athens because that's where we see a lot about the evangelism of Paul. He, he first goes to the synagogue. And there in the synagogue, you see verse 17, it says, Therefore disputed he in the synagogue. The, the word disputed sounds strong, but it's the very same word as translated reasoned in verse 2. So it's not that now Paul is more in a disputing mode. It's the same word. He's discussing. He's arguing. He's convincing. He's reasoning with the people. Again, that whole, everything we just talked about. These are Jews. And the God-fearing Gentiles have heard about the Messiah. They missed on his suffering and death and resurrection. And so he's presenting all of that. Um, and, And... Singled out here is the resurrection of the dead. It's not that before he didn't talk about it, he did. We, we noted that. But now it's singled out a little bit because that's going to be the clincher that brings the Athenians curious. It brings about the curiosity of the Athenians to the point that they want to hear what Paul has to say. And so let's go right to when Paul meets with these philosophers who, who caught wind of, of the message of Paul it's possible that a few of them were in the synagogue. I heard that Paul is bringing some messages. Could be, could be that these philosophers are just seeing a lot of people crowd into the synagogue. They're, they're curious and they, 
understood this theme of resurrection, they're, they're curious. And so, in verse 22, we, we start seeing what we could point to another principle of Paul's inspired evangelism. Look at verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. He said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. And you, you may have heard how that can be simply translated that you are very religious. When, when you look at this in the Greek, it, it is not anything demeaning so much as it is simply informing. You are a very religious people. There's a lot of spirituality here. There's no doubt. And then he singles out what he saw. For I passed and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And the way he's thinking is this. You you have myriads of gods and, and in a sense you don't want to escape any. And if you have, there's an altar for him. You don't even know his name. And Paul felt the freedom. If he's not known to you, then I kind of know who that God is. It must be the true God because the natural man does not know him in a natural way. I need to present him to him. So then he says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, he even acknowledges that they give some kind of honor to this unknown God. He says, Since you're doing that without fully understanding, him declare I unto you. And, and the, the first thing I want to say here to the disciples is that he's, in essence, giving them an illustration. If there's a word to what he's doing, that's what it is. And it's an illustration in a positive note. You know, think of it. Paul could have said, I must declare to you that you are very foolish with so many idols all about. He could have said, what is in your head that you are having all these idols that can't even see or do anything? Where is your heart and mind? No, he he doesn't chide them right off. He doesn't call them off. He actually encourages them because he's telling something he noticed about their religion. And he he brings, you can see here, you you see, beloved, even how how we see, he's, he's seeing them half broken, but he will not break the bruising reed. He, he will seek to mend it. There is a, a, a gentle rebuke. You're, you're worshiping the true God in ignorance. Well, I'm here to tell you who He is. And so just notice this simple reality. He's using an illustration, He's starting in a positive note. And even throughout the sermon, I, I want to put this still here in this first point in this sermon when you look at verse 28 when he says that phrase about God as creator he says for in him we live that quote and then later the next come from two pagan authors for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own poets have said and then this is the second quote for we all also his offspring. These were two quotes from two Stoic poets, Erastus from Cilicia and Cleanthus. Erastus wrote, For in him we live, in one of his poems. Cleanthus wrote, For we are also his offspring. The, the Greek um, philosophers were, were known to understand the reality of a creator God. It was 
quite hazy in their minds to what degree they gave allegiance only or solely to him. You, you may have heard it was, it was in this very Areopagus that only a few years before Socrates was executed because he was beginning to believe and teach that there was only one true God. And, and they killed him because they thought he's perverting the young people with, with a false um, teaching. So the Greeks had this perception of, of one true God. And so Paul uses these poems. And so this is the first thing. He's, he's having a connection with the people. Something positive. Something that will make them listen. He's basically saying, I'm not here against you. I'm here because I love you. And I've noticed your, your religiosity. And, and I've noticed that there's some of you who do believe in a creator. Well, I'm going to tell you about him. And then here comes the second thing that, that he does. Um, he, prese- he launches immediately into God as creator. So as soon as he speaks of, of that altar and that he will present that God, he says in verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath. And all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And so the first thing he brings forth in terms of his sermon points is the God I'm presenting to you is the Creator. And now, right here, some, some commentators make a, a distinction of what's happening. See, when Paul was with the Jews, And with God-fearing Gentiles, he focused on the suffering of Jesus. And now that he is with Gentiles who are not connected to anything of the Old Testament, he speaks of God as creator. And, And this shows how whenever you speak to anybody about Christ in the Bible, you you need to have some perspective, perspective, some sensitivity to what would be the best way to start. Because the Bible makes it clear that it doesn't mean that every person you meet should be the same way. And, and this is important to note because when you think of what's out there about evangelistic methods, it's very common that what they're proposing is like a one-size-fits-all. And you have these ministries who say, this is our method, this is what we do, and this is my method, this is what I do. And whoever they meet, that is how they go. And they use a pattern as if like a cookie-cutter kind of way. And this is not what we find in the Bible. There may be a pattern regarding a certain pattern of people because that's what they need. The Jews needed to know that the Messiah was going to suffer. So, of course, Paul will always bring that up. And he meets with these people who are confused about who created the world, so he starts with their creator. And, and Paul will meet with other groups of people. We, we, we don't have every kind of way that he started with every kind of people, but we at least have already this reality that, well, we have to be careful and we have to be loving and we have to be considerate. So he brings God as creator. And then verse 27, look what he does after he brings God as the creator. And, and, and 
he even brings little subpoints there when he speaks of God as creator. He, he's making clear, well, then he can't be an idol if he's the one who made us. We, we, we can't make him. or We can't make anything that looks like him if he's the one who made us. We, we better not touch what he's like. And he, he doesn't live in anything we, we build. He's, he's the God of providence. So the, these are all little applications of God being the creator. And then comes the next thing. In verse 27, look what he says. That they, meaning you all, that people in general, should seek the Lord if haply, which means if, if indeed, if, if perhaps they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. What we would call this, it is, it is a calling them to faith. He is calling them to believe that they should seek the Lord. See what Paul is saying. God created everyone. God created all of you, my audience. You know, keep be looking at that amphitheater in the Areopagus and looking at all those men, all those philosophers. And Paul looks them in the eye and says, God created all of you. And you all are to seek Him to go toward him. The word seek means to desire. It means to look for. It's, it's a word for faith. That's what we're called to doing. But Paul doesn't just call, him, call them to faith. In verse 29, he calls them to repentance. So he presents them, God as creator. He, he does all these things. He, he brings an illustration and starts in a positive note. He shows them his love. He presents God as creator. He calls them to faith. And in verse 29, For as much then as we are of the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. Beloved, notice what's happening. He's telling them something they shouldn't do. So he's starting to rebuke them. And he will use the word. Look at verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. He calls them to faith, and he calls them to repentance. And this is what we see just trailing through the ministry of Christ and the ministry of the apostles. Faith and repentance. He says, God commands men everywhere to repent. When it says that God winked at, it doesn't mean that people before Jesus, he didn't care what they were doing and they could keep on doing it. It doesn't mean that. But there weren't missionaries going throughout that pagan world telling them to repent. That's what he means. And now he's saying that that's over. Because now we are going to go everywhere. And this is what I'm doing here. I'm calling you all men of Athens. Whether you're Stoic or Epicurean, whatever you are, you are called to believe in this God and you are called to repent of your ways and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then he says why repentance is so important. The, the very next verse, verse 31, he says, Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man. And, and here indicates that maybe he had already said something about Jesus. Because he doesn't even use the name Jesus. 
Jesus, but he says, By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And this is where he brings the topic of resurrection. And then verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So this last note of what he did was he declared to them that judgment was coming. That shows why repentance is of the essence. And so look at the, the outline. He started with an illustration. He called them... He, let me get my note here. He started with the illustration. He presented the Creator... He called them to faith. He called them to repentance. He told them of the judgment to come. That was the inspired evangelism of Paul. We saw it too. Those who knew some religion and some who didn't. Well, they knew many other religions, but not Christianity and the Jewish religion. Let's go to our second point, human unbelief. Because now what we're going to do is look in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens and see how did people respond. Well, here Paul was preaching, and even though we can call this even inspired preaching because God was helping him and using him and the Spirit was was speaking through him, but there were those who did not believe. And what we'll think of them first in our last point will be to look at those who did believe, the gift of faith. But let's think of human unbelief. And, and there are two things that, that I, w- I want to mention before we even look um, at the pattern. And, and they're based on perhaps what, what I've noticed most. Maybe you have noticed other things. But, but it's very common in our, in our modern world, and people emphasize that they have modern minds, that they give this one excuse why they're not believers. Why are they not religious? Why, why do they not accept the message of the gospel? It's a common excuse. It, it goes through nationalities. It's not just an American excuse. There are other nations who have this excuse as well. It, it, it crosses um, ages. It was an excuse in the 1800s, and it's still an excuse today. And, and it crosses ages. It's typically an excuse of older people, like when you're in college age and older. It's not an excuse of little children and, and younger people, but it's usually an excuse of people who enter the academic age because the excuse is, I'm not a believer because I'm too educated. I'm too academic. Um, my studies and the level of modernity of my mind does not allow me to believe in things that are intangible, things that are supernatural and unexplainable. I don't even go there. In essence, some of them do say it. I'm too smart for that. Based on all their studies and findings, and it's not so much that they study Christianity itself, they, they, it's more in this sense. They, they have studied the, the humanistic mindset, and the humanistic mindset is we just don't go in the side of the religious and of the spiritual, and that's what it means to be smart, so we don't even go there. And many people use that excuse, that they're not believers because they're too educated in essence. And then 
We could say in, in, in Christian realms, because among people who are churchgoers, you do find people who have this excuse. I'm not saved because I can't believe. So they would say, I, I don't believe because I can't believe. And what's under underground of that is the thought, I, I would like to. But God has to make me willing. And until he does that, I'll just wait. I'll do the right things and I'll go to church and even read my Bible. But I need to wait for him to do it. You, you've heard it. The phrase that comes with it. That there are biblical phrases. It has to be given. The hard thing about this kind of excuse is it has a lot of biblical principles that are true. But this is the one thing that's not true. To want to believe, but not to be able to believe. That never happens. Not to be able to believe is universal. Every single human is born into this world without the ability to believe. That's why we're going to have in our third point the gift of faith. Because if anyone has faith, it is gift. But it is a lie to say, I want to have it, but I can't. That does not exist in a package. It's not true. Let us see if we find any such people. And of course, we're not going through all of God's word. But let us see if we find educated people here who are not believing because of their education. And let us see if we find people who are wanting to believe, but God does not save them because they can't. Let's see if we find these people. Well, we started, even last time, we were in Philippi. And, and in Philippi, the, the only people that were there we met with who were antagonistic to the gospel, remember, it was those masters of that little damsel. And when she was saved because the demons, she was delivered from them, we look at those men and they were obviously unbelievers. Now, could we say they were unbelievers because they were so educated and so academic and, or, or they definitely weren't willing? So they're not even in that capacity. But no, there was actually nothing of academic in those men. Nothing that rendered them into, you know, typically when you're very academic, you become a polite person and, and polished no, those men were angry that they lost their prophet. So then we come to Thessalonica, and here we, we find Paul reasoning with them, and there's some who consort with Paul and Silas and who believe, but then we find these Jews who believed not. And, and let us see their, their behavior. Why do they believe not? Is it because they're so academic? Well, look how they act. They were moved with envy. They took unto them lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Well, what would academic-leaning people do? And what's interesting, and this is why we're even doing this, we do find in the text some people who are quite academic and leaning in that way in Berea and in Athens. And they seem very civil, and they want to talk, and they want to listen. 
We won't see any of this kind of cleverness in these men. We, all we see is envy, malice, violence, anger, hatred. And so we haven't met them here. Let's, let's go to Berea. And then we arrive in Berea and we do meet educated people. We do meet whom we could consider people who are given to academics. They're, they're even called noble for that purpose. Because look at verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word. But not just that they received it. Of course we like them because they received it. But look what it says. With all readiness of mind. There's, there's a connection with the intellect here. And searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. And so what education did to these people was only help them to believe. And because that's what happens. Therefore, many of them believed. And here we would take it to be of the Jews, because then it says, and also the honorable women which were Greeks and of men, and we understand which were Greeks, not a few. Something monumental happens in Berea. Remember the formula is a lot of Greek men, a lot of Greek women, some Jew men, if any. Here, it's many Jewish men, many Gentile men and women. And what seems to have made a difference is that they were studied people. They wanted to, they weren't just gullible. They weren't just seeing Paul and saying, Paul, you have such a beautiful rhetoric. We'll believe you. No, they said, let's see if this is true. Okay, you said that in Psalm 22, it spoke of piercing. Now, Paul, you heard that he was pierced on that cross? Well, absolutely, that's what they do to those in the cross. Okay, let's go to Psalm 69. It said that they gave him gall to drink. That's what they did to Jesus of Nazareth. They gave him gall to drink. Tell me again that part. And Luke could have said it very well. He wrote it down later. And that they parted his garments? Yes, they did. And what did he say? What did he say when it turned dark? Can you tell us that again? Let's go to Psalm 22. This, this is what a noble Berean is doing. That's what education does for you. Those, those men of Thessalonica don't seem like an educated bunch. And they're not willing to believe. In Berea, we find men willing to believe. And what happens? They believe. They are educated. So they read the Bible. It's not their education that saves them. We, we never raise that f- at all. It's God's word. It's God's grace. But let's go to Athens. Because when we arrive in Athens, we do meet a group of educated people who do not believe. And so uh, when I was putting this together, and, and beloved, I, I need to make this clear. I've done this before in other sermons. Because as I hear sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I, I noticed he's, he does this in so many portions. Whenever he sees reactions regarding belief and regarding faith, he likes to categorize them and break the myths that are out there. And I find that truly helpful. And look what happens in Athens. These are men who are educated. They're Stoics, they're Epicureans, they're philosophers. They will listen to what this man has to say. Now notice a blessing, a a very positive thing that academics does to a man whose mind is truly academic. He will not go to the baser sorts and start a tumult because that's a crime. 
And usually academic keeps us away from that, academics. So what does he do? Let's go to the Areopagus. Let us be civil and let us listen to what this man has to say. So they listen. And now we could say, is it true that they're not believers because of their level of high philosophical um, prowess? When he finishes preaching, it says, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. See, if it's true that educated minds can't believe, then somewhere between the message and the reaction, there has to be something that shows that education. But there's nothing. So even though we find some men who are highly well-trained, etc., we cannot say that it was their education that made them not believe. Because I don't see them using their academics. Now, let me give you an example. To to a degree, we've done this. Think, beloved, if anybody in all of history had a better opportunity to sit down with Luke. Luke was an eyewitness of many things. Paul saw Jesus. And Silas and Timothy would have probably either met or have spoken to some of the apostles. Paul did to all of them. Paul spoke to Matthew. Paul knew Mark. Paul knew Peter. And they could sit down with these philosophers and say, listen, what I propose, you you put a committee together and go to Jerusalem. You will meet all of the apostles there. They saw the tomb empty. And they met with him that same night. They ate food on the first Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, they met him by the lake. I'll give you the names of those who were on that boat. Peter was there. He jumped to go see his Christ. And he had food there ready for them. If you men, Stoics and Epicureans, want to use all your academics, then put your gold together and go to Jerusalem and meet them before they die. This is the day to show that academics will help you believe or not believe. But they mocked. You see, beloved, it's not true. When somebody tells you, you know, I, I, w- I would believe if only I could really research this matter so well. Well, then research the matter so well. The truth is that the person doesn't believe because he actually doesn't want to believe. He prefers to go in his passion. He prefers to go with his envy. He prefers to go with with his own selfish self-belief. And because I would believe this is a great deal. Paul called these Epicureans and Stoics to repent. They're supposed to turn away from all those gods that they're very superstitious about. And they just don't want to do it truth that they don't believe is because they don't want to believe and beloved let's go back to that other excuse there are people who say I'm willing to believe but God has to give it to me so I, I can't dare say I believe until he does it and with that mindset that I, I want to, but God's the one who doesn't give it to me, they might not say it that way, but that's in essence what they're meaning, have we met any such willing people Those men with the damsel definitely did not want to believe. The people in Thessalonica had absolutely no desire to believe. The the ones who didn't believe. The ones in Berea who wanted to believe all did, it seems. 
We don't read of any who were there in the margins saying, oh, I want to, I want to. I just don't know if I can. In Athens, look at the ones who wanted to. Verse 34, Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believe. And even here, beloved, there's something important. It's not that they believed and clave. They clave, so they listened more. They, 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 they were ministered to more and believed. Among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, the very leader of that Areopagus, and, and, and administrating it. So a very educated man. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. You know, like in many places, God singles out a couple names and it becomes very tangible, very real. These are examples of people who wanted to and they believed. I'm not saying they had the power to do it, but they truly had the will. They truly had the desire. And, and, and this is why we go directly to the third point, the gift of faith. Because I, I want to immediately say, if, if, if you have that desire, then if it's a true desire, it's a God-given desire. It's a gift. There is no such person who wants to believe, but that God would say, no, because you're not a chosen one. That doesn't happen. You never find in the Bible someone who wants to believe, but God will end up not choosing that person. Go through the Bible backwards and frontwards. You'll never find such a one. Those who are willing to believe are willing because God has already opened your heart. He's already begun a good work in you and He will be faithful to complete it where you will be able to have that assurance of faith that your faith is true. Now, I want to end in this third point, giving three signs of true faith that we find, because now we're going to trail the, the, the believers through Thessalonica and Berea and Athens very, very briefly. Um, the first is, is not so much a sign of true faith as the very essence of faith, one of the definitions of faith. And, and I want to, um, I, was, I was noticing this would be a good time regarding faith, to read. If you want to follow with me, I'm going to read a quote from one of our Heidelberg Catechism, page 34 in the back of our Psalters, and it is Lord's Day 7, the question, what is faith? So it's question 21, page 34, Lord's Day 7, what is true faith? And notice those two elements. True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, So that's the fact. That's what we call the historical faith. But also an assured confidence, which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. So the two elements singled out are the, the believing in the facts that I'm hearing and the trusting, relying my life upon them, entrusting myself to these very truths. That's the confidence element of faith, the trust, belief and trust. And what we, what we find here in the text right off is the belief. 
We clearly find this belief. And beloved, this is one thing that can happen. Since it's common for us to say that you know faith is not just that first part. I've, I've even heard some people even speak almost in a tone that is negative regarding historical faith. We, we are so anxious to say the totality of faith is, is, is the belief and the trust. And, and many people start focusing on the trust and leaving the, the fact part behind as if it's, it weren't so important. But you need to understand that, that the trust element is completely based upon it because what we're trusting is the very fact. Now, the one fact is Jesus died on the cross. Well, then I trust that fact that when He died on the cross, He did it for me. So I can't say that the trust is more important than the fact, because if the fact goes away, there's nothing to trust. See, we can't bifurcate those two things. They go together. Now, it is true that many people historically think of a Jesus, but they have no devotion, they have no confidence. Of course, we want to avoid that, because that's not true faith. But we can never then make ourselves look negatively, almost as it were, upon the facts. Because if you notice what we were seeing, this is what Paul is doing. He's going to the synagogue and saying, listen, I have a lot of facts to tell you. The Messiah you know in the Bible, well, you didn't notice Psalm 22. You didn't notice Psalm 69 and, 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 and Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and, and, and Daniel 9. And, and I need to tell you. See, it's facts. He's giving a lot of facts. And it's facts that go back to Jerusalem. That there's a, there's a Jesus that was born to Mary, and this Jesus grew up, and he began ministry. And there was a day he was in front of John the Baptist, and and you know in your Bible it speaks of the Elijah. Well, that's that's the John the Baptist. And one day he pointed to Jesus and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." And that Lamb of God became a sacrifice Lamb of God on the cross, on Calvary. I need to tell you the facts of the, of the, of the, of the nails and, and of the scourging and of Pilate and, and of Herod's. It's all history. But those people would never be saved without this history because they needed to understand, oh, so, so this suffering servant is that Jesus that you met on the way and that you, Luke, you, you spoke to Mary, the mother of the Jesus who died on the cross. Tell us again how she looked upon her son when he was screaming from the cross that his father, that his God had, in essence, forsaken him. Beloved, you, you realize it's all facts. It's all tangible things. And see, the educated mind will say, well, give me the facts. I want to hear them. I want to put them one by one and see where the verses are. And, and I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to touch Peter. I want to touch Thomas, who wanted to touch Jesus and didn't have to because he saw him. Well, I want to see Thomas. Where are all those educated people? You see, when they don't believe, it's not because they're educated. It's because they don't want to. And if today there are people who say, I'm too educated, well, then let's be educated together. Let's go look at the manuscripts. Let's go dig in the scriptures. That's what educated people do. And if you say, I want to, I just can't, well, then let's sit down and understand theologically what a person who wants to believe does. Well, he believes. And then he trusts the God who gives us that very faith. 
Beloved, if, if you don't have true faith, you cannot say that you want to believe because it's not true. The unbeliever can't believe and doesn't want to believe. Those two go together. But there's no example in the Bible of someone who wants to believe and can't believe. See, this is where we get tricked because we think it's true. We can't believe. But it never is together with I want to believe. That, that is unbiblical. That's even a blasphemy because that's someone saying I'm, I, I have insight enough to want to. I just don't have the grace to be saved. And, and you think you're holier, but you're, you're really committing a blasphemy. Because a person who believes that way is saying, the reason I'm not saved is because of God. And he hasn't revealed that to me yet. So I need to wait. As if that were such a holy thing. But it's a sinful thing. It, it's a non-existent thing. To be honest, that soul would have to say, I can't believe and I don't want to believe. Just like those who, who had all of that education would have to say, I don't want to believe. And my prayer is that every single soul among us here would be like the, like the noble Bereans who would receive the word and then give yourself with the readiness of mind. See, have the desire and have the education. Go to the word and say, Lord, give me all these facts. I want to, deliver, to, to, to digest them and have them in my heart because I see that they are so precious. They are so true. And I want to trust my life to these very truths. That is true faith. And I just, just, just an ending two tiny points they had continuous devotion you notice this they consorted with Paul and at the very end they clave and believed there's this cleaving effect when when you have true faith you're not going to leave your elder you're not going to leave your father you're not going to leave your mother you're going to want to hear the Bible you're going to want to hear a Bible teacher you're going to want to get a book and you're going to want to devour it you're going to cleave to Christ do you have faith? I could simply ask, do you, do you read your Bible? Do you cleave to Jesus? There's no closer place to consort with Jesus, connect with Him, than to get your Bible and read it. And then speak to Him in prayer. And this is what we see these people who had faith doing. And then the last thing, they had persevering faith. Just this thought, beloved, and I end with this. Remember when Jesus gave the, the, the parable of the, of the seeds and how the seeds fell in different places and there were those seeds that fell on rocky soil and when the seed grew, the sun shone and the roots were not deep and, and it, they died. And that sun was like an example of, of afflictions and persecution. Well, these seeds are being sown during intense persecution. They, they hear the gospel. They believe. It seems like in the same week, they're having to protect their missionaries out of the city into Berea. And then they're in Berea, and some believe there. And then those, those, rab, um, um, those, uh, the, those rascals from, from Thessalonica come after them in Berea. And, and here they are, new believers, the noble Bereans, but they're having to protect and escort Paul all the way to Athens. And these are people who just became Christians. 
and they're having to see that being a Christian is not an easy thing. But it seems like they're continuing. That's what true faith is. It perseveres. It persists. You cling to Christ and you persist in faith. God gives the increase. That's why it's the gift of faith. I just pray that as each of us here, what what happens here, that we would examine our own hearts. Do I have true faith? If I don't, why? Why is it? If I do, give glory to God. Praise Him. Because it's His gift to you. But it's your duty to grow in it and to give thanks to Him and to live for His honor and glory. Let us close in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, how we thank Thee for the missionary journeys of Paul and for all the people he met and blessed. And as Timothy and Silas and Luke was used, Lord, we we know that these very words were penned by Luke and we can only imagine what a support Timothy and Silas would have been to Paul. We thank Thee, Lord. We thank Thee that Thy Spirit was with them. And Lord, we thank Thee that we, we live in days that are the same. There are those who believe and those who don't. But we thank Thee for the reality that Thy Word is truth, that Thy Spirit goes forth. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Lord, we, we need to wonder how often have we shared the gospel with this level of faithfulness, with love, with, with a desire to connect and to show our interest in our friends and to speak with earnest about the dangers of the judgment to come, the call to faith and repentance. We plead, Lord, with Thee, give us, give us, Lord, that heart. May each of us, Lord, leave today with this call of faith and repentance to our own hearts. Lord, would Thou speak to us? Would Thou create this faith in hearts that do not have it? Would Thou dispel, Lord, the excuses that none would say they're too clever or, or desirous but cannot, but that Thou, Lord, would turn that desire, if it's true, into assurance which is comforting. Or reveal to that heart that they never desired to begin with. And that that very terror may perhaps lead them to repentance. And to a true biblical faith. And therefore salvation. We pray Lord all these things in Jesus holy name. Amen.